0: Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're with us visiting this morning, we're glad to have you here. Thanks for joining us for worship. You find us uh, right near the end of our summer series on the life of Abraham. We're going to be wrapping this series up next week. Uh, This morning, though, we're in Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find in a chair in front of you, you will find that on page uh, 16. Of that Bible. Let me pray for us and we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning um, and we come to your word, that which you have spoken to us in scripture. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would bring it alive for us today, that uh, the truth of your word would shine brightly for us, that you would bring it in and have it do its work of changing our hearts, of calling us to faith, of reviving our hearts, of drawing us to you. Father, we are in need of your word, so we ask for it this morning. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Uh, This story is is about a test. We read that in the very first verse, that God tested Abraham. Abraham. And when you think about a test, maybe several different kinds of tests come to mind. One, uh, many of you are in the midst of uh, this part of your life now. School tests, where you have to face exams and you sit down with a piece of paper and you are expected to show what you know. School tests that ask us, what do you know? And I still have nightmares of uh, waking up and having to take a test, not only that I have not studied for, but for a class that I didn't even know I was signed up for. So I still have those at this point in my life. School tests, what do you know? It's not the only kind of test, though. There are other kinds of tests. Uh, as many of you will have met our new youth director, uh, Annette, As she's come this summer. Some of the guys in the high school have arranged a certain number of tests for her um, to see not, not what do you know, but what can you do? and the report that has filtered back to me so far. So far, she's aced soccer, which we'd hope she would. She played in college soccer. She uh, passed the ultimate Frisbee test. She's a little nervous about the upcoming basketball test. I I don't know what else is on the list. Uh, Polo, javelin throwing, skydiving, I don't know. I'm sure she'll do fine. Um, There are other kinds of tests, too. Not only, you know, what do you know or what can you do, but what can you decipher? Many of you will have seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. As this movie came to mind. I sort of gradually realized it wasn't as recent as I thought. Uh, if, if you were a college senior, could you raise your hand? Okay, this came out the year you were born. So, uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Notes, terrifying. Indiana, Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. He's on this quest to find uh, the Holy Grail, the cup that Christ used at his last supper, and he has to go through these various tests to. to Get to the grail, the breath of God, and he realizes only the humble person comes before God and he ducks before he's beheaded. And the Word of God, and he has to solve this puzzle with the letters of the name of God so he doesn't fall down the chasm. And the path of God where he comes before this yawning, uh, incredible chasm, and he has to take this step of faith and he navigates it all. Okay, maybe a more recent movie um, Inception, same idea. What can you decipher? Will he make it out of the maze? Will he see his, his kids again? And most importantly, is the top still spinning? If you haven't seen Inception, you should. Okay. <laughs> different kinds of tests. You know, what do you know? What can you do? What can you decipher? Well, this text is about a test, but a different kind of test. Not one of those questions, but this one. What do you love? That's the test that Abraham goes through here. What do you love and that's what we find here at the heart of this. So as we look at this test, we're gonna see we're gonna look at the test and Abraham and the test and God and the test and us. As we look at this question of what do we love? So first the test and Abraham. The, the story opens up with him receiving this call from God to come and offer this sacrifice. But between chapter 22, where we're starting here and chapter 21, Um, likely at least 10 years have passed by, and uh, Isaac is probably a teenager here. I'll I'll explain why that is later on. But so about 10 years have passed with apparently no word from God, and then suddenly God calls to Abraham and he says, Here I am, and he gives him this command to go and sacrifice his son. Have you ever gotten a phone call and and you pick up your phone to answer it and it's just as you're opening the phone or or hitting the button that you notice the call waiting and who it's from and you can't stop your thumb from pressing the button? And so you're saying hello, wishing you'd just let it go to voicemail, right? You ever had one of those calls? Well, maybe that's what Abraham was tempted by when he picks up the phone for this call and he receives yet again another and um, incredibly taxing, life-altering call from God. God comes and gives him this command to take his son and sacrifice him. And as I read the story this week, um, just felt the, the weight of this command of God and the questions that it brings up for us. How could God ask this? What about Isaac? What would all this have done to him? How could God have even suggested this to Abraham? What kind of God are we dealing with here? number of times in the last several years as we read Bible stories to our kids at night, we've got this kid's Bible. And every time we would come to Genesis 22, I would just flip the page and go on to the next story. Because I just didn't want to read it to my kids. Because I didn't want to have to look at it with them through the eyes of my children. And yet, here we have it, here in Scripture for us. I think if we're going to understand this, there are a few things that would have been apparent to Abraham that are not apparent to us that we need to understand if we're going to read this rightly. And the first thing is what we we see here first, that this, Abraham is called to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And because it is a sacrifice, a burnt offering, that immediately puts this command in the context... Of the the yearning gulf between us and God that's created by our sin and how that gulf between us and God can be crossed, okay, that's what's at stake here because you notice when God comes to Abraham, Abraham did not simply uh, get up in the middle of the night that night upon receiving the vision and go and stab his son Isaac. He didn't do that. Why? Because the command is not simply go kill your son; it is go offer your son as a sacrifice. It puts it squarely in the middle of a religious rite that would have made sense to Abraham that there must be sacrifice for sin. It was not this random demand as it might have sounded to us. In fact, if Abraham had woken up in the middle of the night and heard God's voice telling him to go and to sacrifice his wife, Sarah, he would have said no. He would have said, I'm hearing voices this time, because that can't be God. Because he would have no context for that. But he did have a context for God coming and demanding the life of his son, Isaac. Why? Well, to understand that, we need to understand the centrality and the importance in Abraham's culture, the place of the firstborn son. The firstborn son was the hope of the entire family. He was the one who would inherit the lion's share of the family's wealth. He is the one that would carry on the name and place in society for the whole family into the next generation. He represented the future of the family. And as we read more than once in scripture, the life of the firstborn belonged to God. It's what we see at the time of the Passover in Exodus when Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt. When he's come to Pharaoh time and again and said, God tells you, Pharaoh, to let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And God sends the ten plagues on Egypt. And the last of those ten, the culminating plague, the one when God reaches down to the very bottom of the chest and pulls it out, the thing that finally turns Pharaoh is when he demands the life of the firstborn son. And he sends God sends his angel of death through the land of Egypt to take the life of every firstborn son except for the sons of Israel, except for the sons in whose homes there has been a slaughtered lamb and the blood of that lamb has been put on the doorpost so that the angel of God would pass over and spare that family. Okay? Part of what is going on in this is that it is tapping into this reality that the life of the firstborn belongs to God. It's what we read later in Exodus chapter 22 as God explains His sacrifices to His people. He says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. In the firstborn of your sons you shall give to Me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you will give it to Me. You see, the law says that the firstborn belongs to God. Now the law also goes on to say... In this later context of Exodus, that the firstborn son, human son of a family is to be redeemed. It is to be bought back with the life of a sacrificial animal. That something is to be given in an exchange. That God does not demand a human sacrifice, but he finds a way to rescue the son from that. But all that comes later in Scripture. When God calls Abraham here, Abraham knows what God is doing and what is happening. When God calls Abraham to come and sacrifice Isaac, Abraham knew that God was calling in the debt that Abraham knew he owed. He had a context for understanding this. So the struggle for Abraham was not so much how could God possibly ask for the life of a firstborn son, the struggle for Abraham was, this son is the son of promise. Isaac is the one that God, from first to last, has been saying, it is through Isaac that all the nations will be blessed. Isaac will be the next link in the chain of me fulfilling my promises to the whole world. Isaac, through Isaac. So Abraham is looking at this, of God has promised this on one hand, but on the other hand, our holy God is, as is his right, calling in the debt. How are those things going to go together? How is God going to both fulfill his promises and uh, uphold his right as a holy God? That is the struggle for Abraham. Though this would have made sense for Abraham, it is still the case that God is asking the most difficult of sacrifices from Abraham. And the way the narrator tells us this, um, there's incredible art In this passage, an incredible restraint. But I think as we look at some of the specifics here, you'll see how the narrator of this story is showing us the deep bond between Abraham and Isaac. First of all, in verse 2, when God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take your son, literally in the Hebrew, it says, Abraham, please take your son. And it's one of only a few places in Scripture where a divine command is preceded by please. And you get the sense that even here, God knows what he is asking of Abraham, the enormity of what he is about to call his servant and friend, Abraham, to do next. You see, the cost to Abraham is written there for us in these flashing neon letters. Right there in verse 2, as the narrator shows us again the power of what he's asking. Hear the way it's phrased. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, Whom you love. The setup's even more dramatic in the Hebrew. Um, It says it this way, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. It doesn't name him till the end as though even the sentence strings it on. Abraham, your son, the one that you love. God knows what he is asking of Abraham. And Abraham, as we see, obeys God but God knows and Abraham knows and we are meant to know that this obedience comes at enormous cost to Abraham. As the story goes on, the, the suspense builds. Um, he gets up in the morning and the first thing he does is he obeys. Uh, my wife Elizabeth and I, when we talk to our kids, we tell them this wisdom that was passed on to us from other parents When we talk about obedience, we say there are three things about obedience. That you obey right away, all the way, and with a cheerful heart. What does Abraham do? He obeys right away. And he obeys all the way. And he obeys with an obedient, but likely an understandably heavy heart. He saddles his donkey. He takes two of his servants. and He takes Isaac. And then one of the strange details of the story. Then he cuts the wood. Maybe that he's going to arrive at this place of sacrifice. He doesn't even know where God's calling him to go yet, and there'll be no wood, no fuel for the sacrifice. But it's interesting here that it's listed last. You'd kind of think that he'd chop the wood, and then he'd gather everybody and put it on the donkey and set out. Um, it's like you, maybe you find out you have to leave suddenly as a family on a trip. And so you start the car, you load your family up, and then you go back inside the pack, right? Things are a little out of order because you're a little ruffled. And maybe Abraham is too. As he's wrestling with the enormity of what he is called to, that he uh, too is out of sorts because this strains his will and, as well. And then three days of travel. Three days of walking with his son to carry out this mission. Three days of anticipation. Three days of silence as to what is to happen. Three last days with his son, the apple of his eye, the joy of his life. And then there's the final ascent where uh, Abraham and Isaac go on alone and they leave the servants. Abraham walking with his son up into the mountains in silence until at last... Isaac asks this question, my father. Abraham answers just as he had to God, here am I. But this time, here am I, my son. Father, here's the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb, my son. As so I was preparing for the sermon this week, I listened to a couple other sermons on this that other pastors had given. And in one of them uh, preceding the sermon, the, the text was read by a woman. And as she read through the text and as she got to this portion of the text, this ascent up to the mountain, you could just you could hear the trembling in her voice. You could hear the emotion as she read these, the power of this conversation, the sadness of it. And as I heard it, I thought as i heard her emotion that she must have a child of her own you see um, the text invites us to read it that way they arrive abraham prepares for the sacrifice he builds the altar and he lays out the wood and he binds his son isaac and as a side note here isaac is likely a teenager at this point think about what abraham has just done at the foot of the mountain he's taken enough wood to consume his son and he's laid it on his son's back to carry up the mountain. Isaac is likely at least a teenager here and he's strong enough to carry this wood up on his back and he's probably strong enough that when his roughly 115-year-old father comes to bind him that he could win or he could run and he doesn't. He trusts his father and he trusts his God So he binds him and then the next thing the text tells us he raises the knife to slaughter his son and the angel speaks up in the literal nick of time. You see, Abraham has been tested as to the deepest, the most fundamental love of his heart and he loves his son deeply and he loves his God more deeply still and he passes the test. The test and Abraham. We also see here the test and God. Gordon Winham, a commentator, says this, No other story in Genesis, indeed in the whole Old Testament, can match the sacrifice of Isaac for its haunting beauty or its theological depth. You see, what happens next when God says, uh, Wait, Abraham, do not slay your son. Abraham doesn't at that point get up, pack everything up with Isaac, and simply go home. Why? Because there is still a sacrifice that must be made. See, as we've said, the Bible teaches us that the firstborn is owed to God because of our sin. And we also see throughout Scripture that it's not only the firstborn, that we are all in debt to God because of our sin. The thing that has caused our alienation from Him, the thing that has caused our hostility towards God, and that debt must be paid. Hebrews chapter 9 puts it this way, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There must be a sacrifice A number of years ago, when Elizabeth, my wife, was working in the hospital, she got in this late-night conversation once with uh, two of the other doctors, a Jewish friend of hers and another friend who uh, was well-read and very interested in world religions, and somehow they got on to the, the topic of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And both were friends expressing their opinion that this idea of blood sacrifice in the Old Testament was simply barbaric and offensive. How could that possibly be in the Bible? And how could we possibly believe in a God who would demand something like that? And yet, here it is in Scripture. And so we have to hear the testimony of Scripture as we try to think our way through this. You see, our sin, our offense against God is high treason. And it is serious enough that it can only be answered by the punishment of death, either by us or by one who would stand in our place. That is how significant it is. That is what an incredibly big deal it is that God's image, people made in his image, would turn and reject him. And the flip side of that simply speaks to the incredible dignity and significance of what it means to be human created in God's image, but human turned away and the punishment is death. So how is this debt for Isaac going to be paid? How is this test of Abraham's going to be answered? Well, in verse 13, Abraham looks up and behind him he sees a ram caught in the thicket and he offers it up. As it says in verse 13, he offers it up Instead of his son. You see, Abraham knew what was happening. This sacrifice God provided in order to spare the life of Isaac. God has provided the lamb for the sacrifice that he has demanded. You see, Abraham is obedient in the test. But it is God who finally answers the test. Who finally brings it to completion. Who provides the answer to his own test. Who provides himself The sacrifice that he requires. And for Abraham, the pieces begin to fall into place. Abraham's struggling with how can God fulfill his promises through Isaac and yet be holy and rightfully demand this debt. How are those things going to be met in this lamb provided by God? You can hear Abraham throughout the story straining to somehow put these pieces together and get his hands around what God could possibly be doing. Even in the fog he's trying to see through. If you go back and look through the story, you see these glimmers of hope that Abraham believes that his God somehow is going to tie these pieces together. In verse 5, when they leave the servants to go up the mountain, he says to his servants, he says, the boy and I are going to go and worship, and then we will return. And they're on the way up the mountain. And Isaac says, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, my son, God himself will provide the lamb. And he did. Abraham, hoping against hope, obedient in God's commands, and God rushing in to fulfill for him his promise and the need for a sacrifice. And all this happens, we're told in the text, on Mount Moriah. And we read about Mount Moriah again in Scripture in Second uh, Chronicles when the time comes for Solomon to finally build God's temple where all the sacrifices will be offered. And the temple is built on Mount Moriah, right where Abraham stood this test with his son Isaac and right where this gift of a sacrificial lamb was given in order to redeem Isaac and buy him back from death. And we see here that God provides the lamb and we see in scripture that God provides the true lamb and the final Look at the promise that's given and reiterated to Abraham once he navigates this test. Verse 17, 18, he says, Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What we read here is offspring. In the Hebrew, it's not plural, it's singular. The offspring will come, the one will come, who will defeat the enemies, and who will be a blessing to the world. This is what Paul takes up in Galatians chapter 3 when he speaks about this story. And he says that this offspring that was promised to Abraham is the one man, the one man, Jesus. It's the offspring that he points us to. It's what John the Baptist said in the Gospels when Jesus first appears on the scene of public ministry. John is out there at the Jordan River baptizing the masses of the people of Judea. And he looks and he says, when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And it's this lamb that Peter points us to in 1 Peter when he says, It is with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, that we are saved. And in Revelation chapter 5, near the end of the Bible, as we see the people of heaven praising our God, they look and they see on God's throne a lamb who had been slain. And they sing this song, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, on Mount Moriah, God answers his own test. And not far from Mount Moriah, another mount, Mount Calvary, God finally answers his own test where he gives us the gift of a lamb who buys us who redeems us, who is the hope for us. God answers his own test, and Abraham sees it. Do you see what he names this place where he has just gone through this encounter with God? Heard uh, our own uh, resident RUF theologian and pastor Ben Robertson put it this way. He didn't name the mountain, Abraham is awesome, Or Abraham got it right. Or Abraham was so obedient. Rather, Abraham names this place, The Lord Will Provide. And the text tells us even to this day, it is said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided for us. The test in Abraham, the test in God, what about the test and us? If this test was really met in Jesus, what does that mean for us? That God has answered the test for us. Well, a couple things. One, I think it means that we are to know, to really know, a freedom and a joy that comes to us only through the gospel. I mean, you see what this is a picture of and what we see in its fullness in the New Testament in Christ, that this is the answer to your sin and your guilt, to my sin and my guilt. And that means for us who have found our refuge in Christ, that there is no more heavy heart of shame before our God because our sin has been paid for. And so for us, as we follow Christ, when we do sin and fail and falter, what do we do? We run again to the one who is no longer our judge, but who is now our father and who welcomes us home. We come to the one who has paid for it all. Last night, we were reading a story to our kids in this catechism book they have that goes through the shorter catechism questions and answers and tells these little stories about kids that illustrate it. And, and in, in this story um, that we read last night, th- there's a little girl who uh, goes with a friend to, her, to this girl's grandmother's, her own grandmother's house. And as they're there, she shows her friend this, this uh, glass case that has some of the most beautiful and precious things a grandmother possesses. She opens the, uh, the case and she takes out this, this little porcelain, delicate porcelain bell that her grandmother's own grandmother had given her, that reminded her of her grandmother. And as she goes to pick it up, it slips and it falls and it shatters. She turns to her friend and she says, Oh, no, my grandmother is going to hate me. And the grandmother who sees this happen walks up behind her and she says, No, no, I could never hate you. I love you. She forgives her granddaughter for what she has done. But not only that, she says, it's okay, I forgive you. But there's more. And she reaches up to the top shelf, and she pulls out this little, very delicate, crystal bell. And she says, this is the bell that I'm giving to you, because I love you, and it is yours. And there's this child facing these two incredible realities at the same time. I have been forgiven for something I can't imagine being released from. But the story didn't end there. It was not simply that my debt was taken away, but I was given a gift so far above and beyond. What does this story tell us about the gospel? That our sin has been paid for, it has been taken away. But not only that, that we receive, therefore, the very favor of our God, the very love of our God, the very righteousness of Christ, the perfect Lamb, that is given to us as a gift for us, our debt paid and true life given to us in response. And don't you see more and more as we grab a hold of that, how that answers not only our sin and our guilt, but also our fears and our anxiety. Paul put it this way in Romans 8. He said, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You hear what he's saying? He has given us everything in Christ. He has bought you back. He has freed you from your sin. He has paid the ultimate price for you. What will he not give you? Don't you see there is nothing to fear. There is no reason for anxiety. That even in the hard places of life, Christ is with you. And he has shown it for us on the cross. You See, this test for Abraham ultimately came down to this. Who do you love? What do you love most? And the answer we find here on the cross is that what does God love? He loves us. He loves us enough to take this test to its very completion. The Mount of Calvary, we see God the Father and Jesus the Son going through the test that Abraham and Isaac point to. The real test, the real sacrifice of the firstborn son. And this time, God the Father does not stay his hand. You see, this time the hammer falls, and this time the nails go in, and this time the son cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this time the true lamb was slain. You see what that means? It means that God loves you even more than Abraham loved his son Isaac. The bond between Abraham and Isaac was deep and strong like iron. And the bond between God the Father and Jesus the Son was deeper and stronger still. And so, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And Christ so loved the world that he gave himself for us, for you. The gospel tells us that God loves you. And this same God with us now and always until the end of the world and beyond. Now, if you can hear that piece of God perfectly reconciled to you, no more sin, of nothing that obscures his vision of you, of nothing that blocks his love for you, nothing that can conquer the power of his life in you, then you are ready to hear the other part of what this passage tells us. That's this, that when we see Abraham in his obedience, that we see that there is a place for us in light of the gospel to rightly obey as well. See, God has called us, he has rooted and made us alive in his love, and we are to love him in response. And we do that by obeying him. Right away, all the way, with a cheerful and trusting heart. Because he is for us, irrevocably. So where are you struggling to obey God right now? Where are you not putting God first? Where are you maybe avoiding reconciling a broken and difficult relationship? Or does obeying right now for you mean persevering in a very difficult circumstance? Or does obeying God for you right now mean, mean saying no to sin that you've been allowing in your life? Don't you see? You and I belong to God. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians as, we speak of this, as he speaks of this response of obedience. It says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, the very highest of prices. So glorify God in your body. See, the test for us, the one that has been successfully navigated for us in Jesus, still comes to us as a question. Who do you love? And who do you love most? And our God and Savior who loves us, calls us to himself to respond in love as we trust him and as we obey and as we keep our eyes on him above all else. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you as we look at together this uh, profound and difficult and yet glorious passage of scripture. And we just say thank you that you have given so much for us. May we grab hold of that. May we be changed by it. And from it, may there flow in our lives joyful, ready, quick obedience. As we seek to serve you, because it is our privilege, we pray this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, the Lamb. The final sacrifice for us, Jesus.